0: your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 988, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, let's pray for help. Gracious God, please open now our eyes to understand your word aright. Lord, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, Every word of scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching or proof or correction, training in righteousness. We do pray now that your word would have its uh, unhindered work in our lives. Use your word now to do great and mighty things, to save those who don't know you, to edify those who do, to further your kingdom here on this planet. Please, Lord, work in a great way now. For Jesus we pray. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, this is God's Word. Do not quench the Spirit. May God give us ears to hear his Word. As most of you know, in my spare time, I serve as a chaplain in the U.S. Navy Reserves. I just recently finished two years, and it's been a thoroughly enjoyable experience. I originally joined up for more opportunities to talk to people about Jesus, but it's turned out to be an awful lot more than that. This last summer, I attended basic chaplain school in Newport, Rhode Island, and for six weeks, we had classes on all sorts of different topics. Classes on counseling, classes on hospital ministry, classes on religious freedom and the Constitution and suicide prevention and drug and alcohol abuse. Uh, Incredibly helpful. Uh, I feel very privileged for this opportunity. Well, another class we completed was called Battlefield First Aid. Now, I will confess, I did not expect to get much out of battlefield first aid. The reason for this is because over the years, I've actually taken several first aid courses just for fun. Uh, At one point, I was certified with the Red Cross uh, in basic first aid, so I didn't expect to learn anything new. Uh, But, my goodness, I was so very wrong. I discovered there's a massive difference between basic first aid and first aid on a battlefield. Uh, You know, first aid for something like a broken bone uh, and when you've got a leg blown off. Enormous difference. Uh, Here are a few pictures that you might be interested in. That guy's actually not hurt, he's pretending. We were uh, going through some drills. You can see a stretcher in the background. I don't know if you can see me. I'm right in front of the uh, TV screen there. Go to the next one. Uh, One of the big things that you do with battlefield first aid is learn to carry people. You know, obviously, if you're on a battlefield and there are bullets flying by, you need to carry people. So we tried all sorts of different uh, carrying methods. This is one of the more common ones. Keep going. Next slide. And then we got to experience this. And if the picture looks a little bit fuzzy, the reason for that is it was raining sheets when we did this. Uh, So imagine carrying somebody approximately your same weight on your shoulders like this uh, in just downpouring rain. So all of this was part of the battlefield first aid class. Well, with any kind of first aid, whether it be basic first aid or battlefield first aid, one of the things that you check for are vital signs. Vital signs. Things like pulse, breathing rate, body temperature. And these vital signs tell you a lot about the person's health and state um, where you need to serve them, how you need to minister to them. Interestingly, in the battlefield first aid thing, another thing that you check for is active bleeding. Um, and what you've got to do, because you know people are generally covered with gear, you've got to peel off all this gear to see if there's like a bullet hole and blood is actively flowing out of that. Well, just like Vital signs tell you much about the health and the state of a person you're trying to help with first aid. There are ministries that the Holy Spirit performs that we could call vital ministries. These are ministries that are, in a sense, vital signs of the Spirit's work in your life. If the Spirit dwells within you, if the Spirit's at work in your life, you'll see these vital ministries. There'll be evidence of them. Of course, they'll be faint at times. Of course, they need cultivating at times. Uh, They might be almost indiscernible, especially in a new Christian. But where the spirit is living and active, these ministries will be evident to one degree or another, both to yourself and to those around you. Today we're going to be talking about three vital ministries of the Spirit. Specifically, how he focuses our attention on Jesus, how he teaches us to pray, helps us fight sin. And in all of this, the question I want you to be asking yourself is, do I see these vital signs of the Holy Spirit in my life? Do I see the Holy Spirit working in my life, bearing these fruit in my life, or are they totally absent? Now, just to bring you up to speed, we're nearing the end of this long series on your relationship with the Holy Spirit. If you remember way back in time, this entire series was inspired by 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Do Not Quench the Spirit. We desire to know enough about who the Spirit is and his works to put that verse into practice. Now, in this series, we have gone all over the place, talking about the Spirit's work in the Old Testament and the New Testament, talking about the way in which His ministries changed on the day of Pentecost, talking about the way in which we need to be sensitive to His conviction and His leading. But as I began imagining how we're going to conclude this series, I sat down and wrote out a list of the final things I really want to cover with you all. Uh, And I came up with a list of six things that I want to make sure you, my congregation, understand about the Holy Spirit. These were... Not substantial enough to have a complete sermon of their own. So what I did is I divided that list of six up into two. So we're going to cover three this week, three next week, and then, Lord willing, our series on the Holy Spirit will be done. That's where we're going. So today, consider with me three vital ministries of the Holy Spirit. And the first of these is this. It's the Spirit's role to focus your attention on Jesus, not himself. As odd as that might sound, especially in light of the series where we've gone for 10 weeks, we'll be gone for 10 weeks talking about the Holy Spirit. Nonetheless, it's the Spirit's role to focus your attention on Jesus and not himself. Now, it's very common for people when they start learning about the Holy Spirit and what the Bible teaches about him, they want to make a change. They think, you know, for years I neglected the Spirit, I didn't really think much about Him at all, I've been ignorant of His ministries, ignorant of His person and work, so to remedy that, I'm going to decrease the amount of attention I pay to Jesus or God the Father to increase the focus I place on the Holy Spirit. Entire churches can do this as well. They think, you know, we talk really probably too much about Jesus here, so we're going to tone that down a little bit so that we can increase our focus on the Holy Spirit to show you this morning that that way of thinking, while certainly well-intentioned, is misguided. Uh, sure, these folks mean well, but it's wrong-headed, and they're actually working against what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in their lives. To show you this, take a look up here at John 16, 12 through 15. Chris read this section earlier. Now, John 16 is part of Jesus' teaching right before he goes to the cross. I mean, we're talking hours before the cross. Uh, John 14 through 16 is a section of scripture called the Upper Room Discourse. Now, if I could make just a couple of quick observations on this passage. First, this passage is not talking about every believer's experience. Be careful with the way in which you use this passage. Uh, Yes, every believer is indwelt by God's Spirit, but this passage is talking about the apostles who will go on to, to write later books of the Bible. You know, if you look at your Bible, obviously you've got Jesus teaching in the four Gospels. But Jesus says right there, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. There's more I would teach you if I could, but I'm going back to heaven. But what will happen, verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, my apostles, into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that that will come. So I'm going to send my Spirit to you, my apostles, my disciples, and you will write the rest of the New Testament. That's what this passage is talking about. Again, don't think it's talking about the Holy Spirit like whispering in your ear or something like that. That's not what this passage is teaching. But be that as it may, what I want you to focus your attention on is there in verse 14. When the Spirit comes, what will he do? He will glorify me. And clearly, the me in context is Jesus, so he, the Spirit, will glorify me. His role is not so much to draw attention to himself, but to Jesus. Now, if you trace this throughout the rest of the New Testament, this is exactly what we see. Think about the book of Acts. Acts. When the apostles and the disciples, when they go about from Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and to the rest of the world, when they go about preaching the gospel, they don't talk a whole lot about the Spirit, but they do talk an awful lot about Jesus. Acts 2.34, let all the house of Israel know that for certain God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Check out the sermons in the book of Acts. There's an occasional reference to the Spirit here and there. But there's about a hundred times more references to Jesus. You see the same emphasis in the epistles. Of course, there are passages in the epistles talking about the Spirit. But again, there are probably ten times more talking about Jesus. Read the epistles sometime and put this theory to the test. This is why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I decided to not know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When you survey the New Testament, the clear emphasis, the clear focus is on Jesus, not the Holy Spirit. We have no commands anywhere in the New Testament to be followers of the Holy Spirit, but we're called regularly to follow Jesus. There's no command to fix your eyes on the Spirit, but we have several commands to the effect that we should fix our eyes on Jesus. The New Testament calls us Christians, but never Holy Spirit-ins. And New Testament churches are called churches of Jesus Christ, not churches of the Holy Spirit. And something we noticed in Sunday school today, Christians are progressively being conformed to the image of whom? The image of God's Son, not the Holy Spirit. And I think part of that, we can exp- ask me more at the door about this, I think part of this is because Jesus takes on flesh and blood, the Spirit does not. So there are things that the Spirit does that we're not called to do, whereas Jesus in his incarnation is fully human. But ask me more about that at the door if you're curious. Now, in saying all of this, don't think for a moment we're trying to diminish the Holy Spirit, dishonor the Holy Spirit, we're not treating him poorly at all. No, all we're trying to do is recognize his proper role in the plan and the purpose of God, to glorify Jesus. It's kind of like this. It's the job of a mirror to reflect not itself, but the image of the one looking into it. Am I right? And a good mirror, you, won't almost, you almost won't even notice the mirror, you'll just look at the image that you're seeing in the mirror. So also, the role of the Holy Spirit is not to draw attention to himself, but Jesus. And that's not dishonoring the Spirit at all. It's, again, simply acting in concert with his proper role. Now, having said this, let me make a few clarifications. First, what I'm saying here does not mean that we never talk about or learn about the Spirit. Of course not. This entire series has been all about the Spirit, his person and work. I mean, for 10 weeks, we'll have talked a lot about the Spirit. So don't hear me saying any of that. Additionally, don't hear what I'm saying under this point to mean that you shouldn't learn how to properly engage with the Spirit, how to live in line with His ministries. Of course you should. And again, I've been trying to lay out in this series how you can do that. But what I am saying here is, where do we place our primary focus? Who is the primary one we fix our eyes on? Who is the primary one we follow? And honestly, I think the... Emphasis of the New Testament ought to be reflected in the emphasis of our life. You know, they ought to kind of line up proportionate. And again, the emphasis of the New Testament is clearly on Jesus, on following him. It's Like we read in Hebrews 12, too, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So here's what this means practically. What this means is that a spirit-filled believer is increasingly growing in their love for Jesus. You get that? A spirit-filled believer is increasingly growing in their love for Jesus. They're increasingly fixing their eyes on him, increasingly grateful for the cross, increasingly grateful for the empty tomb. Uh, They want to read more about the gospel. They want to read more about the work of Jesus. They, They love singing Jesus praises. They're increasingly trying to tell others about Jesus and persuade them to trust in him. All of that is evidence of the Spirit's work in their lives. You follow that? A similar dynamic takes place in churches where God's Spirit is at work. A Spirit-filled church is going to be preaching and teaching a lot about Jesus. Uh, they're going to be singing a lot of songs and hymns about Jesus, really in a sense, every ministry is designed to introduce people to Jesus or to grow people in their relationship with him. And again, that's not at all diminishing the Holy Spirit or meaning that they never talk about the Spirit at all, but it's simply acting consistent with the Spirit's role. In light of this, I want you to examine yourself. If the Spirit's role is to focus your attention increasingly on Jesus and not himself, does your life measure up? Do you see this vital sign in your heart and life? Are you increasingly focusing on Jesus, increasingly finding yourself loving him, increasingly seeking to tell others about him? Do you? If you do, take that as a wonderful, healthy sign that the Spirit's at work in your life. For this is one of his vital ministries. Moving on, consider with me a second vital ministry of the Spirit. Consider with me a second how the Spirit teaches believers how to pray and to pray. The Spirit teaches believers how to pray and to pray. Now, let me say a few quick preliminary things here. First, by prayer, we mean talking to God. I've discovered a lot of people have very different definitions of prayer. Uh, the rote reading of mantras, you know, spinning of prayer wheels. There's a lot of definitions out there. And do, do keep in mind, when you're talking to somebody about prayer, don't assume they necessarily mean by prayer what you mean by prayer. So we mean talking to God. That talking might take a variety of forms, Might be giving thanks, might be asking for this or that, might be confessing sin, might be adoring God for his person and work, uh, might be lamenting the sin that we see in ourselves or in the world. A variety of forms, but at the end of the day, the common denominator that defines what prayer is is that it's talking to God. I'm verbalizing my desires to him. The second thing, the Bible is clear that prayer is something that needs to be taught and learned. True, sincere prayer is something that needs to be taught and learned. It's like Jesus said in Luke 11.1. Pardon me. Jesus, he'll eventually say something, but listen to Luke 11.1. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Of course, any unbeliever can read a rote prayer without any real meaning, you know, some, from a prayer book or something like that. And of course, there are times when a non Christian is just under great duress and they cry out to God. You know, say their child's diagnosed with cancer or their spouse threatens to leave. Pretty much any human is going to cry out to God under those circumstances. But to have this rich, personal, life giving, strengthening relationship with God where you're continually communing with Him, talking to Him, that's impossible without the help of the Holy Spirit. To pray like Abraham or Moses or like David or like Jesus, to just transparently process what you're going through with God, again, you cannot do that without the Spirit's help. Well, this raises the question, how does the Spirit teach us to pray? And what does he use to teach believers how to pray? If this is something he's doing in the lives of those who know him, how does he do this? Well, there are external ways and internal ways. External ways and internal ways. External ways would be things like pastors preaching sermons on prayer, teachers teaching lessons on prayer, uh, books about prayer, praying, say, in a prayer meeting with your brothers and sisters and and learning from their example, Uh, maybe imitating the example of your godly parents or grandparents, Sunday school teachers, something like that. All of those are external ways of learning how to pray, and at the end of the day, it's the Spirit working through those to teach you to pray. But in addition to that, the Holy Spirit also works in internal ways, in our hearts, in our minds, to teach us to pray. I know we've talked about this several times in this series, but the nanosecond a person trusts in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in that person. That's why we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember talking about this? And when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in somebody's life, he's not hibernating there. He's not dormant there. When the Spirit comes to dwell in somebody's life, he gets to work. He gets to work renewing that person, teaching that person, helping them put sin to death, bearing fruit in their lives, transforming them from the inside out. You might remember we studied this several months ago in 1 Thessalonians 4.9. Paul writes, Now concerning brotherly love, we have no need for anyone to write to you anything, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Remember talking about that verse? I think something analogous could be said of prayer. Concerning prayer, you yourselves are taught of God to pray. In the heart of every true believer, the Spirit is at work teaching them to pray, encouraging them to pray, convicting them of their prayerlessness, moving them to gratitude when they see their prayers answered. And as I hope to show you later on, I also think God gives us burdens to pray for specific things. That's a work of the Spirit. Well, of course, none of us prays as we should or as much as we should. At least we long to prayer and are convicted by our prayerlessness. If you can sympathize with what I'm describing right now, again, take that as an evidence of God's Spirit at work in your life. Now, to show you that the Bible does indeed teach these things, take a look up here at Romans 8, 14 and following. In Romans 8, 14 through 16, we read this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, this is a remarkable passage indeed, and I wish we had more time to talk about it. Maybe one day if I ever preach through Romans, we can get to it. But I want to draw your attention to what this passage says, particularly about prayer. First, in verse 14, we have this statement, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I've discovered a lot of people misunderstand that phrase. They think being led by the Spirit is like the Spirit whispering in your ear "Uh, go over here, turn right there, turn left there. That's not what this passage is talking about. The reason for that is because what word does verse 15 start with? Verse 15 starts with the word for. You see that? For you did not receive the Spirit of slavery. Whenever you see the word for, that's explaining a relationship. So in context, verse 15 is explaining verse 14. How is it that the Spirit leads God's children? Well, here's how, verse 15. And what does verse 15 say? You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now let's talk about that term Abba, Father there. I'm sure you've heard that before. Raise your hand if you've heard Abba, Father in conjunction with the Bible. Pretty much everybody. Now, Abba, Father, it's uh, it's a Hebrew word, and it basically means dad, dad. It's not as formal as father, and it's not as informal as daddy, but dad's a pretty good rough synonym. And you'll notice in this passage, who is it that's moving us to cry out to God, Abba, Father? The spirit of adoption as sons, which is clearly in context, the Holy Spirit. So you put two and two together, it's the indwelling Holy Spirit who's moving us to cry out to God as Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Now, I want you to think through this. If you find yourself just instinctively drawn to cry out to God in prayer, to draw near to him as Father, to say, God, I am a sinful wretch, but I know that you love me as a tender father because of what Jesus has done, take that as the Spirit at work in your life. And tying that to verse 14, this is in part how we're led by the Spirit. The Spirit is leading you by moving you to cry out to God, Abba, Father. You follow that? Another thing I want you to notice, look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now again, read this in context. Many people take this verse out of context, and again, imagine the Spirit kind of like whispering in your ear, you're God's child. But I don't think that's what this means in context. Putting it in context, I think the Spirit bearing witness is that internal inclination to call God Father. This is how God both leads us and the Spirit bears witness. So if in all the messiness and distress of life, if you're still nonetheless compelled to cry out to your Father in Heaven, if through, say, cancer or wayward children or a spouse who takes off, again, you know, takes off, if you're nonetheless motivated to just cry out, even through tears, Father in Heaven, have mercy on me. Realize that's there because the Spirit's at work, and that's the Spirit leading you, and that's the Spirit testifying that you're God's child. Did you follow that? Pastor Sinclair Ferguson writes about this in his very helpful book on the Holy Spirit. He says, At the very least, this crying, Abba, Father, is an expression of the Spirit's bearing witness with our spirits that we are God's children and therefore heirs together with Christ. It is in the cry that God's children utter that the Spirit bears witness. Even in the darkest hour, although he may be broken and bruised, tossed about with fears and doubts, the child of God nevertheless in his need cries out, Father! As instinctively as a child who has fallen and been hurt cries out in similar language, Daddy, help me. This is the cooperative and affirmative testimony given by the Spirit. Assurance of sonship is not reserved for the highly sanctified Christian. It is the birthright of even the weakest and most oppressed believer. I think this is in part why other religions pray so differently. Uh, you know, obviously religions have different religions have their prayers, but they don't draw near to God as a tender heavenly father. And that's because their prayers are, they're just looking at the entire activity entirely differently. It's not the Spirit inspiring me to draw near to my Father because of what Jesus has done. It's more like putting coins in a vending machine, hoping that God will give me what I want if I say the right mantra. Now, keeping all of that in mind, I want you to examine yourself. Can you sense the Spirit increasingly teaching you to pray, Abba Father? Again, not to recite rote prayers from a prayer book, those can be helpful. But if that's all you ever do is recite this rope prayer from a prayer book without any real heart engagement, without any real tenderness, examine yourself. What's going on? The Spirit gives us this instinct, this inclination to draw near to God as Abba Father. But do you sense that in your own life? And do others sense that in you? Now, keeping all of this in mind, I want to show you something fascinating. Keep in mind what we just saw in Romans 8 about the Spirit inspiring us to cry out, Abba Father. Now, look up here at Galatians 4.6. In Galatians 4.6, we have this. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, clearly, there are some similarities. The indwelling spirit, crying, Abba, Father. But in this verse, who's the one praying, Abba, Father? Is it the believer or is it the spirit? Maybe don't say anything out loud. Think first before you say anything out loud. In this particular verse, is it the believer crying out, Abba, Father, or is it the spirit? It's clearly the Spirit. If you check a good commentary, that's what this verse is saying. The Spirit dwelling in you is crying out, Abba, Father. Now, how can both of these things be true? How is it that we cry out, Abba, Father, and the Spirit dwelling in us is crying out, Abba, Father? How does that work? Well, recently I was reading an old book by a Puritan named Thomas Goodwin, and he makes a rather startling suggestion. He says that our cries of Abba, Father, are actually the Spirit praying like hand in glove in and through us. So, so while I'm praying, Lord, have mercy. Lord, help me in this situation. Lord, I don't think I'm going to make it. That's the spirit interceding within us and like through our words. It's Kind of a fascinating concept. Just so you don't think I'm misrepresenting him, let me read to you a section from his book. It's called The Heart of Christ, which is an outstanding book, but really hard to read. So if you, if you're, you, know, if you find Shakespeare easy, maybe check this book out. But listen to what he says. Thomas Goodwin writes, All your prayers, call it that slide if you would, all your prayers are proof that Jesus is filled with compassion and pity toward you. For the Spirit who moves you to pray comes in Jesus' name and in his stead and works all by commission from him. When you pray, it is the Spirit that formulates your prayers and that makes intercession for you in your own hearts, which intercession of his is but the evidence and echo of Christ's intercession in heaven. See if you can get this. I realize these are kind of deep thoughts and old words, but if you can get this, this, this will kind of blow your mind. The Spirit prays in you because Christ prays for you. He is an intercessor on earth because Christ is an intercessor in heaven. The Spirit takes the words, as it were, out of Christ's heart and directs our hearts to offer them up to God. You follow that? I find this utterly fascinating. So if you're deeply, deeply burdened for something, let's say it's your kids. You're just Crying out every day, Lord, please have mercy on my kids. Lord, please open their eyes that they might trust in Jesus. That's not just you praying. That's the Spirit praying through your words for the salvation of your kids. And I think we can say the same for a wide variety of prayers. Uh, The things that you're deeply burdened for that certainly please God. I mean, like I'm going to say in a minute, we can pray for selfish, sinful things, and we're not talking about that. But but a true God-glorifying burden, if you're just crying out, Abba, Father, for this, for that... You've got to understand that you're not praying that only because the Spirit's motivating you to, but in some weird sense, the Spirit's also praying through that. Now, Since this is kind of a wild idea, let me make a couple of clarifications. First, don't take what I'm saying here to mean that Christians cannot pray for wrong things or that every last thing we pray for was given to us by God. You know, of course we can pray selfishly, we can pray amiss, uh, so, so don't hear me. This is not like a blank check. Anything you're praying for, the Spirit's working, and, and therefore you're going to get it. Don't take it that way at all. Additionally, and I know that this is going to sound even more mysterious, there do seem to be occasions where the Spirit prompts us to pray for things that it's not God's intention to give us. Think through that. There, are, there, there do seem to be situations where God is prompting us to pray for this or that by a Spirit that God does not intend to give to us. Where do I see this in Scripture? Well, think about Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen to Matthew 26, 39. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, My Father. And guess what word he's actually using there for Father? Abba. So we're praying to, to Abba because Jesus prays to Abba. We have the same kind of relationship with God that he has with God. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, think through this. Is Jesus without sin? Of course. Is Jesus continually filled with the Holy Spirit? Of course. Is Jesus always praying in the Holy Spirit? Of course. But does Jesus pray, if it's your will, take this cup from me? Yes. Was it God's will to take this cup from me? No, because that was obviously talking about the cross. So evidently there are at least some situations where you can be prompted by the Spirit to pray for something which God does not intend to give give to you. Now you ask, why on earth would God do that? Well, here's the reason why. It's because at the end of the day, there's something more important than you getting what you want, and that's intimacy with God, growing in your relationship with God. And you can experience that in prayer even if you're praying for things that God never gives you. you know, maybe ask yourself this. Have you ever prayed for something for months on end, years on end, and, and then you never received it? Uh, you know, Maybe you prayed for a healing for a loved one, and, and instead of healing them, God took them home to heaven. Don't take that prayer as wasted time. We're such efficient Americans that we can think that. Oh, I wasted all... No, you even praying for something that God doesn't give you is you communing with God, which deepens your relationship with God, even if you don't get what you want. Because in the long run, what's more important than you getting what you want is growing in your relationship with the Lord. Does that follow? Now, I realize I've said some deep stuff under this particular point, but here's sort of the long and the short of it. I'd encourage you, if you're a believer in Jesus... Look at it this way. Unless they are manifestly sinful or selfish, assume that promptings to pray are the workings of God's spirit. All right, unless they're manifestly sinful or selfish, you know <laughs> I won't give you, you, can, you can imagine what sinful prayers might be., you know, Lord kill so-and-so so I can marry his or her spouse." You, know, you can imagine those sorts of things. But unless they're manifestly sinful, assume promptings to pray are the workings of the Holy Spirit. I'd encourage you to respond to those promptings immediately. Pray in line with those. Uh, And again, believe that God will use those to grow you in your relationship with him. So praise God, the Spirit teaches believers how to pray and to pray, but do you see this taking place in your life? Do you see again this draw, like a magnetic pull to draw near to God as Abba Father? Or do you look at prayers about as pleasant as going to the dentist? Quickly, let's consider one final and third vital ministry of the Holy Spirit. Realize that walking by the Spirit is the only truly effective way to fight sin. Realize that walking by the Spirit is the only truly effective way to fight sin. Now, all true Christians hate sin, and we want to put our sins to death. Again, this is simply one of the things the Spirit is doing in our lives. While we'll never achieve perfection in this life, and while even the best Christians still sin multiple times a day, and that will continue until we go to heaven, if we're born again, we have new hearts, a new nature, a nature that loves the things of God and hates sin, at least a little bit. Now, is it true that another part of us still loves sin? Sadly, yes. Yes. And realize that at the end of the day, that's why you sin. You sin not because the devil made you do it or because the circumstances were just too tough and you couldn't endure uh, or because of peer pressure or because of anything. No, we sin because, truth be told, we, we love that sin. We kind of enjoy it. And that's why we sin to our great shame. So this is the dilemma we find ourselves in. If we're indwelt by God's spirit, he's teaching us to hate sin and to put it to death. But because of the flesh, because we're still incarnated or incarcerated in flesh, we still find sin so attractive and enjoyable. Anybody know that experience? Interestingly, the Apostle Paul describes this vividly in Galatians 5.16. Follow along as I read Galatians 5.16 and following and see if this feels like what you experience. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. You ever feel like you've got like, a war going on within you? You want to do what's right, but you don't. The good that I want to do, I don't do. Instead, the evil that I hate is what I keep on doing. Any of you have been there? To keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you were led by the Spirit, you were not under the law. Now, the key verse here is verse 16, and this is so huge. Bring that next slide up. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The reason why you keep getting yourself into so much trouble goes back at the end of the day to the desires of the flesh. Why do you drink too much? The desires of the flesh. Why do you lie to your boss? The desires of your flesh. Why do you hide things from your spouse that you don't want to get in trouble for? The desires of the flesh. Why do you keep looking at pornography? The desires of the flesh. In the words of James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. All right, so far so good. You've probably heard that teaching before. But this is actually where so many Christians take a wrong turn. They think they're going to fight the desires of the flesh with superficial behavior modification. Big words, but I think you know what they mean. They think they're going to they're conquer these lusts of the flesh by simply changing something out there. So, for instance, if I drink too much, I'm going to change the route I drive to work to avoid driving by the bar. Uh, if I keep lying to my boss, we just won't hang out in the uh, break room and I won't tell him fish stories. If I keep looking at pornography, I'm going to put covenant eyes on my computer and that will prevent me from looking at stuff I shouldn't. I'll change something external and that will solve the problem. Now, again, let me clarify, some of these external changes can be incredibly helpful. In my own life, there are several sort of boundaries I've placed uh, to keep me far from sin. Of course, it's helpful to do what you can to avoid temptation, but make no mistake, those are not the real difference maker. Superficial behavior modification, that's not the real difference maker, because that will not change your heart so that you hate, sin, and love righteousness. It might keep the temptation away, but what's going to happen the first time that temptation falls in your lap? You'll lap it up as soon as you can. What you need is something deeper, something that changes your loves. And this is where walking by the Spirit comes in. Again, verse 16, it could not be clearer. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's like a promise. I mean, I, I promise. How do you avoid fulfilling the desires of the flesh? Walk by the Spirit. You see, when, the, when you walk by the Spirit, again, he begins changing what you love. And like I said earlier, the reason why we sin is because we love sin. But what happens when your love for God displaces your love for sin? Sin isn't as nearly attractive anymore. Walk by the Spirit, and especially over years, you'll see that sin not be, not be so pretty anymore. And you'll see God become increasingly attractive. Walk by the Spirit and you'll find your love for God increasing and your love for sin diminishing. As that takes place, you'll increasingly delight in God's commands. Psalm 119 will make a whole lot of sense. And sin will just, you know, again, not that you'll ever reach a point in this life where you'll never be tempted or never want to sin, but it just won't hold the same allure to you as it used to hold. Can anybody testify that what I'm saying is true? By the grace of God, I've experienced this in several areas of my life. Not every area. There's a lot of areas where I'm working to put sin to death. A lot of the stuff that used to woo me and attract me, I just look at it as like, that was a dumb waste of time. That's a fruit of walking in the Spirit. Well, all of this begs the question, how then do we walk by the Spirit? If this is the really only effective way of fighting sin, how can I do this? Well, the short answer is by doing a lot of the things that we've already talked about in this series. Let me read to you sort of a bullet point summary of some of the main ideas we've talked about in this series, and I think they pertain to walking by the Spirit. And If anybody wants copies of these PowerPoint slides, just let me know and I can email them to you. And how do I walk in the Spirit? Remain sensitive to the Spirit's conviction and repent at the very first hint of conviction. Fill your mind and heart with the Spirit-inspired word, meaning the Bible, until it transforms your thinking and behavior. Train yourself to actively think of yourself as the temple of the Holy Spirit and develop a fear of doing anything that would grieve or offend that indwelling spirit. Pray daily for the Spirit's illumination, conviction, and transformation, and then wait expectantly to receive these gifts. Worship the Spirit as the third person of the Trinity. Give thanks for the gifts of the Spirit you know about and learn about those you don't. When you see any degree of fruit of the Spirit born in your life, any love, joy, peace, patience, so forth... Thank God for planting that and growing that because, again, that's not coming out of your flesh. Spend much time fellowshipping with others who are indwelt by God's Spirit, praying with them, discussing the word of the Spirit with them. When the Spirit prompts you to pray for something, drop whatever you're doing and pray desperately and earnestly. And by drop everything, you know, obviously don't like slam on the brakes and, you know, hop out of your car. You can, you know, you can pray legitimately while you're driving down the road. Rely on the spirit as the one who gives you the strength to grow, change, love God, and love your neighbor, and to put sin to death. And lastly, believe that the spirit will preserve you all throughout this difficult and dangerous life until you reach glory. All of those are key to walking by the spirit. So I want to ask you right now, what sin is bothering you? And I don't say anything out loud, but what sin is just dominating your life? You've got sort of a low-grade guilt about it all the time. You feel ashamed about it. It might be destroying your family, destroying your relationships, destroying your job. What sin is messing your life up right now? Regardless, realize that walking by the Spirit is the only effective way to fight that sin, to put that sin to death. But very frankly, I ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe what I've been saying under this point, and will you do what you need to do to walk by the Spirit? At a concluder time this morning, I want to speak briefly to those of you who might be here this morning and are not Christians, who have not yet put your hope in Jesus. If that's you, we're delighted you're here. Thank you for coming. In fact, there's nowhere we'd rather you be on a Sunday morning, 1045, here with us, hearing God's word, singing God's praises. Thank you for coming. But if you're here today and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus, I need to tell you that you are totally cut off from the source of life and strength that we've been talking about all morning. Why is it that you have no interest in focusing on Jesus? Because you lack the Holy Spirit. Why do you not know how to pray or even desire to pray? You lack the Holy Spirit. Why is it that you can't seem to get a handle on those sins that are destroying your life? Again, you lack the Holy Spirit. But listen to what Jesus says in John 7, 37. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Right now Jesus is inviting you. Come to me. Trust in me. Put your hope in me. Jesus will forgive you of all of your sins, past, present, and future. He'll adopt you into his family. And what's more, he'll give you his Holy Spirit who will begin transforming you on the inside. The Bible, God's word, tells us that you were made to know God. And I've got to bet that something within you tells you that that's true. Is there something deep down within you that tells you that you were made to know God? Not just to make money, not just to have fun, not just to sail the seven seas, but to know God. This is one of the ways that we're dramatically different from animals, intelligently designed to have a relationship with Almighty God. God. But the truth of the matter is we've sinned, we've rebelled against God, we've tried to live our own life without any regard to how God has designed it to be lived. Essentially we try to live as if God doesn't even exist when in reality he is a loving, gracious Heavenly Father who delights to care for us. Now because God is righteous and holy, he will punish us for our sins. He'll pour out his wrath on us for our sins. Slightly in this life, but far, far worse in the life to come. And unless our sins are forgiven, unless we have a Savior, unless we're reconciled to God, we will suffer eternally in that real place called hell. But under those very circumstances, God loved us. He loved sinners, and he took the initiative to heal and restore the relationship we destroyed. God provided a Savior, a Savior who can forgive you and reconcile you to your Creator. God the Father sent God the Son down to earth, his promised Messiah. God the Son was born as a baby to the Virgin Mary, given the name Jesus, fully man, fully God in one person. Jesus grew up and lived the life of perfect trust in and obedience to God we should have lived, always filled with the Holy Spirit, always obeyed God in thought, word, and deed. But if you know the rest of the story, Jesus died a horrifying death in his mid 30s, arrested, nailed to a cross, hangs there in darkness until he dies. The Bible tells us that while Jesus is dying on the cross, he's taking the wrath of God deserved by sinners. This is how God can remain holy and righteous while forgiving those of us who have rebelled against him. By dying in our place, Jesus satisfied the demands of God's justice for us forever. Three days later, God the Father raised Jesus back from the dead to testify that what I'm telling you right now is true. He ascended to heaven where he is now, and one day he's coming to return. And now in response, again, here's the invitation. Turn from sin, embrace me, be forgiven. Turn from sin, embrace me, be reconciled to your creator. Enter back into that relationship with God you were made for in the beginning. This is why Jesus came to earth, to reconcile us to God, to forgive us of our sins. And again, until we have trusted in Jesus, we're totally cut off from that life-giving spirit. Totally unable to pray as we should, to fight sin as we should. So in conclusion, come to Jesus now. Come to him right now, right where you are. You don't need to get up, move around, anything like that. But right now, turn from sin, believe on the Lord Jesus. Embrace his loving leadership. Rely on what he has done on the cross and the empty tomb to make you right with God. Do that now. As always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, you need clarification on something that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, please talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out but trust the lord jesus as your savior today and today receive the gift of god's holy spirit pray with me oh god in heaven thank you so much for the gift of your spirit lord the gifts that you have for your people are overwhelming uh, they're they're priceless to think that you not only forgive us of our sins Uh, not not only give us the sure and certain hope of heaven, but you put your own spirit within us who teaches us to pray, teaches us to love, you, teaches us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Such an amazing gift. Lord, for those of us who have been born again, please increase our gratitude for all that Jesus has done. And for those who have not yet put their hope in him, work in their lives now, that they would embrace the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.